Chapter Seven of On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck by Robert Pitcher Woodward. Chapter Seven. I mop the hotel floor. I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. So soon as ere his face I see, I know the man that must hear me. To him my tale I teach. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner Having the funds to tide over a couple of days, I set out early next morning for Syracuse. At 11 p.m. we tramped tired and footsore into the village of Fayetteville, having traveled 20 miles, the longest day's journey yet made. My donkey was fagged out. The stablemen could hardly get him into his stall. But Mac had great recuperative power and was so frisky in the morning that we resumed the march to the Salt City. It was still some distance to the city when an incident happened to mar the pleasure of our peaceful walk. In passing a large dairy farm, Mac's grotesque figure excited either the admiration or the contempt of an ugly-looking bull, which left a small bunch of cattle in the field and trotted along the dilapidated fence. His actions were frightfully menacing, and I urged Mac to a faster gait. Suddenly the bull broke through the fence, bellowing, and made for us head down. My first thought was to save Mac's life. The leather-rimmed goggles he wore placed him at a disadvantage, aside from the fact that the road was icy and denied us a secure footing. Then, too, Mac carried seventy-five pounds burden, including my grip, the saddle, and rifle. I was wholly unprepared for the bull. My revolver was unloaded, I having made it a rule to withdraw the cartridges every morning. As the bull lunged at my donkey, I struck Mac with my whip and wheeled him about with the reins in time to dodge the enemy. Recovering himself, the enraged bull made another lunge at my spry partner, and still another, the third time scraping off a tuft of hair with one of his horns. I could only assist Mac with the reins while striking the bull over the face with a cutting rawhide. I yelled for help. A quarter mile away stood a farmhouse, and in front of it two men gawking at our circus, indifferent to our peril. I never was more active than during those awful moments. Mac afterward said he never was so busy in all his life. So rapidly did we three pirouette, the bull after Mac, the donkey after me and I after the bull, that the two human statues in the distance must have taxed their optics to distinguish which was which. So dizzy did I become that I wheeled Mac round and started in the opposite direction, the enemy bellowing, I calling, and the donkey braying to beat a fireboat whistle. Finally I heard the glad sound of approaching wheels from up the road, and at a distance saw a horse and buggy. As it came nearer, I distinguished a woman driving, and my heart sank. Surely she would not have the courage to venture into our very midst, 
she must soon turn round. A man might drive to our aid. Still, we three kept busy until the rig wheeled down upon us, the prancing horse so distracting the bull that he shied to the opposite side, and forgetting us, set out on a trot after the receding vehicle, lowing vexatiously. I held my breath. Soon we collected our senses and hustled on until the enemy was lost to view. There are many who would call our rescue a marvel. Mac said it was just our luck, but I thought it was miraculous. A prominent hotel in Syracuse welcomed me as its honored guest, and crowds cheered us to the door. I had consumed six weeks traveling from New York, a distance of 340 miles, although by rail the mileage shrinks to 303. It was Friday, January 8th. I was tendered a private box at the theater that evening, and the following day Mac and I appeared on the stage between acts at both the matinee and evening performances, I receiving five dollars for each appearance. Saturday I devoted to business and was invited to the Elks Entertainment in the evening. At noon on Monday we headed for Auburn. A heavy snow accompanied a fall of the mercury. Great drifts had formed during the night, reaching anywhere from inches to feet and from yard to yard. My spirits were low. The first eight miles to Camillus were covered in four hours. After a good rest and poor fodder, we strode on over the white and solitary road seven more miles to Elbridge, where at eight o'clock I registered at a cozy hostelry and ordered that Mac be cared for and my supper at once be prepared. Then I hastened to canvas the stores, disposing of three photos at fifteen cents apiece. My overnight expenses would be a dollar and a half. I lacked forty-five cents of the amount, but that did not disconcert me. The hotel was composed of bricks, and its proprietor was one of them, a jovial grand army man who wore a big soft hat and a blue coat with brass buttons. His cranium was chock-full of entertaining reminiscence, too. At that time men were engaged with mule teams, hauling stone for repairing the canal, and the hotel was filled with an incongruous lot of teamsters and laborers. Judging by their roguish remarks, it would be wise of me to place my donkey under lock and key. But when I hinted it to my host, he assured me my fears were unwarranted. I was assigned a large chamber on the main floor, next to the dining room. There was no lock to the door. I complained about it. Nobody will molest you, said my host. I soon fell to sleep. Long before daylight I was awakened by the juggling of plates and cutlery and the racking of a stove. It was impossible to sleep during such a hubbub, so I proposed to smoke. Rising from bed and groping in darkness, I hunted for the electric light button hanging from the ceiling, but had proceeded only a few steps when suddenly I fell headlong over a huge, hairy substance which moved and yawned. Hamlet's ghost! Was this really midwinter's night's dream? I sat on the floor for a moment to set my dislocated big toe on the off foot, then staggered timorously to my feet, found the cord, and turned on the light. 
Could I believe my eyes? There lay Mac Aroni. He gazed at me in mute bewilderment and blinked like an owl, then presently rose to the occasion, brayed, and charged at the donkey in the mirror. It was enough to awaken the whole village when the excited animal rushed around the room with the mirror frame for a collar, vaulting chairs, bed, and table, and exerting his best efforts to kick holes in the walls and ceiling. "'What in damnation is the racket?' yelled the proprietor as he came running to my room. I thought to disarm him by being the first to complain, for I expected some harsh invectives to be hurled my way. "'You said I should not be molested,' I said indignantly, standing on a mantel-shelf in my nightshirt. "'Well, it's the first time my house was ever turned into a stable,' retorted the erstwhile jovial Grand Army man. "'And it's the first time I ever was made to room with a jackass,' I returned in a rage. By this time Mac had stuck a foot in the frame collar in trying to clear the stove, and had fallen. I quickly leapt from my perch, and my now more conciliating host helped to disengage the beast from his wooden harness and give him a forcible exit. Then we dressed and set to work clearing the room. Of course the cook rushed in to have her say, otherwise that hotel was suspiciously quiet, considering what had happened. When I went to breakfast, the landlord met me with a smile. It surprised and pleased me. I concluded that the practical jokers had settled everything to his satisfaction. My table-mates were unusually uncommunicative. Their conversation hung mournfully on the weather. My breakfast finished, I went to my host and informed him of the state of my finances. Two mule-drivers were discharged last night, he observed. I could have got you a job if you had told me in time. Right here an aged townsman came in, stamping the snow off his boots, unwound a great tippet from his neck, and regarding the clay-besmeared floor, delivered his opinion to the landlord. Call blast me! If I run a house a-looking like this, I'd closed up and go out of the business, the Granger remarked, with a critical eye to the floor and a wink at me. I agree with you, said I. Price ought to pay a quarter to have the floor cleaned. It would be worth twice that sum to me to see you clean it, he returned humorously. It's a bargain. So saying, I pulled off my coat and called for a mop and a pail of hot water. The landlord seemed to regard the incident as a good joke. So did Pie Pod. Rolling up my trousers and shirt-sleeves, I fell to work. The old man fled to spread the news as soon as he saw I was in earnest. My first sweep with the old mop shattered it. The landlord lost no time procuring a new one. Then I went at it as though it were my special line of trade, and so deeply absorbed was I in the novel undertaking that less than half of the population of the village filed into the room without my comment. There were men and women, young and old and middling, and children bound for school, all around, backing against the walls and windows, commenting, laughing, and joking, while I just mopped, and with new jokes helped make merry for I felt that was an experience of a lifetime for us all. A pretty girl snapped a Kodak at me, 
She took fifteen orders for pictures within a minute. I was gratified to see all enjoy themselves. Still, I kept mopping and watched the clock to see how much time was left before school. My time was coming. I wanted everybody to hear my story. They didn't know a thing about me or macaroni, except through newspaper reports, which are not always reliable. Finally, I dropped my mop and straightened up to rest my lame back. Does that suit you? I asked the landlord. A handsomer job was never done this floor, said he. You have earned your money. Everyone evidently wished to see me paid. As I received the cash, I whispered to my host to hand me the key to the door, expressing my purpose with a sly wink, which he hardly interpreted. The silver jingled with the brass in my hands, and I went to the door and locked it. Then walking to the desk, I turned, faced my audience without a blush, bowed low, and said, Ladies and gentlemen, and children of Elbridge, then I gave a brief account of my travels from New York. My words pleased and were greeted with laughter, but they had not heard my peroration. We rarely appreciate anything that costs us nothing, I began my conclusion. In New York, a show such as I have just provided would cost at least a dollar and a half for orchestra chairs and fifty cents for the family circle. This seems to be the family circle. Now, to save the bother of printing tickets and posters, we admitted you to the show without delaying you at the door in the frosty air, and one and all, young and old, must pay me five cents before you leave this room. The door is locked, and I hold the key. Those of you ladies who left your purses on the piano can borrow of your gentlemen friends, who doubtless will be ready to help you out of your dilemma. Some of you may demur and complain of hard times, but said excuses will not hold with me. I carry hard times with me whether I go on my long journey, whereas you have yours only in one place. As soon as all have paid me, the door will be unlocked, and not until. I thank you for your unsolicited audience, and I trust that the next time we meet the circumstances will be as happy for us all as they have been this January morning. My speech must have been forceful, for the nickels poured into my hat. As each individual paid, I motioned him or her to the opposite side of the room to guard against humbugging. The landlord had to come to the financial relief of a few, but the door was opened in time for school, and everybody departed with evident good feeling. My host was the most astonished of all, and, with a hearty grip of the hand, predicted that I would reach my destination. Without delay, I settled my account with him, saddled Mac Aroni, and with $2.80 to the good, started for Auburn. The last denizen of the village to bid me Godspeed was the philanthropist who unwittingly procured me my bill for the hotel show, and then filled my purse for me. End of chapter 7 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.